As you're seated, please turn in God's word to 2 Kings chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4, as you try to find 2 Kings, I, I'll explain some things that I explained last week as well, that we've been going through Matthew's gospel for some time, and the next passage we were about to look at was the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And we decided to pause for a few weeks in the summer and look at the power of God to restore. Because as Jesus was entering Jerusalem, He did so with all the hopes of a nation set upon Him. All these hopes that the Messiah would restore God's people who had been held captive for so long and and were downtrodden and weak. And did God have indeed the power to restore them? And as God's people looked to the history of His work among them, they could see His hand at work, His power to restore. And so we decided to look at some of the stories of the prophet Elisha and to see there how God restores His people. The story we're going to look at today is a long one, and so I'm going to skip around a little bit. I'll be starting in verse 8. If you want to try to follow along, I'll see if I can give you directions. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. Verse 12, And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunemite. When he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Did you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my Lord. O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived. And she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. When he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Down at verse 25. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Verse 32. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands, and he stretched himself upon him. The flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. When she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. And she picked up her son and went out. This is the word of the Lord. 
of my favorite poems. Such a fun poem. It's a 20th century American poem called Casey at the Bat. And if you're at all into baseball, you need to read Casey at the Bat. Uh, without giving any spoilers to how the poem ends, it's the story of the Mudville Nine, a, a baseball team, and, and it's not looking good for them. It's the final inning. They're down 4-2, to two, and it's just a, you know, some of their worst players coming up to bat. And, and the poem says, A straggling few got up to go, but the rest clung to the hope that springs eternal within the human breast. Because they were hoping that maybe, just maybe, Casey would get to bat. And then all would be well. I like that line, the hope which springs eternal in the human breast. Even when, when it's four to two and it's the bottom of the ninth and two guys are out and it's just a bunch of a hoodoo and a cake or what they're called. Just guys who can't play ball worth anything are coming up to bat. Hope springs eternal in the human breast. But sometimes we are afraid to hope, aren't we? Sometimes it just doesn't seem possible. And we're afraid that if we get our hopes up, we will only be disappointed. Some of us at an early age learned that the best thing to do is to lower your expectations. Because if you lower your expectations, you won't be disappointed. Why bother hoping for something that seems unlikely? You'll only be disappointed. The books of First and Second Kings, which really was one book, the book of the Kings, was written to a people in despair. It was written to people who felt abandoned by God, punished by God, rejected by God. And they needed a foundation for hope as they looked at the days ahead. And they asked themselves, can God resurrect this nation? Can He bring His people back to life? Can He once again dwell with us? And in this story from the ministry of Elisha, we have a phenomenal character, not Elisha, but the mother, who strangely remains unnamed throughout the story. Yet she exhibits amazing faith. And at the same time is honest about her fears and her doubts. And as we read her story, we see reflected in her life the fears of Israel in exile. When God promises to restore His people again, and like this woman, we might be tempted to say, don't you dare get my hopes up. If you can't do what you promise, I will be devastated. But through the work of God in her life, the Spirit teaches us of the sure foundation we have for hope. A foundation built upon the very character of God. Beginning with the knowledge that He is generous. God is generous. The story begins on a very positive note. We meet this woman who, by all accounts, is an extraordinary character. She is wealthy. Things seem to be going well for her. She lives in Shunem, which is a, a midway point between two places where Elisha would have occasion to travel. And it was you know, about a half a day's journey to get from one place to, from Elisha's place to Shunem. So it was a good, a good stopping place. And uh, recognizing that Elisha was God's prophet, God's servant, this woman extended him some generosity, some hospitality. At first, in, in verse 8, we see that she would feed him. And then once his visits got regular, in verse 10, she took the initiative and convinced her husband that they should convert one of the rooms in their house to be a room specially for Elisha, to give him a bed and a table and a place to sit and rest whenever he was passing through. It's a, it's a beautiful example 
of hospitality. I got to experience this myself when I was younger and, and working in missions. And there was a, a couple in, in Virginia who, who lived in a city where I often had occasion to pass through. And they they'd converted their basement into a room that was dedicated for my use whenever I was in town. They, they didn't need to do that. But they recognized that God had blessed them with the space and the resources to do that. Hospitality. It's a beautiful thing. This woman here reminds me of uh, someone mentioned in the, in the New Testament, Phoebe. Paul mentions Phoebe in Romans 16 and says that she has been a patron, which is a, a, a financial benefactor, a supporter. Phoebe has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Hospitality. Opening up your home, your dinner table, your life. It's an essential virtue of the church. In fact, it's, it's a requirement for officers within the church, that they be hospitable. And the reason that we're called to show these virtues, as is often the case, is because they reflect the character of God. We are generous because God is generous. And as we see again and again, our ability to live out the gospel finds its power in the gospel. We are generous because God is first generous to us. Elisha, recognizing the blessing that he receives from this woman, wishes to see blessing returned to her. He wants to see her rewarded for her generosity. And so in verse 13, he says, you've taken all this trouble for us. What's to be done for you? And then in verse 13, he offers to use whatever political influence he might have for her. Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And this would be a great opportunity for her to elevate her status. But she refuses. In verse 13, saying, I dwell among my own people. In other words, she's saying, look, I, I, don't, I don't need anything. I am taken care of. I am with my kin, my family. I have all I need. But then Gehazi, who is the servant of Elisha, points out the wound of this woman's heart. She has no son. And in that day, in that culture, having no son meant no heritage. It meant no legacy. It meant no hope for the future. When her husband, who we already saw was old, when he dies, all of his property, everything that is his, doesn't go to his wife. If he has no son, it goes to the next nearest relative, to a brother, to a nephew, to an uncle. That's the culture that they lived in. And this woman, having no son, would have felt shame and embarrassed. So Elisha calls her in and delivers what we would expect to be great news to her. He says, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. You remember what happened to, to Sarah, the wife of Abraham? She who was childless, she who had an elderly son, elderly husband, was promised that she would, in a year's time, bear a son. You remember what Sarah did? She laughed. She laughed. <laughs> yeah, right. That's not what this woman does. In verse 16, she says, No! No, my Lord! Oh, man of God! Do not lie to your servant. In other words, Elisha, don't mess with me like that. Don't play with my heart. Don't build up my expectations and my hopes for things that aren't going to happen. It's, honestly, it's a confusing reaction because she recognizes that Elisha is a man of God. She recognizes that he is empowered by God's Spirit 
She embraces and welcomes God's ministry through Elisha, and yet she doesn't believe that God will do this one thing. Now, I know that I speak this morning to pious people, to good, faithful Christians. I know that you believe in the power of God. I know that you walk by faith. But do you ever find that line that your heart just doesn't want to cross? Do you ever see God's command or God's promise and think, no, no way, that can't be true. That's too good to be true. I can't let my hopes be built up about that because I don't think God will come through. Where is that line for you? Our hope fails when we doubt the generosity of God. Our hope fails when we doubt God's generosity. When, when do you reach that line? When does your hope fail? Is it when you read that if you give generously, God promises you won't come up short? Or perhaps when you read in the Bible that if you love your enemy and if you pray for the one who persecutes you, that God will bring justice in His time? Is it when you hear that if you speak boldly on behalf of the Gospel, the Holy Spirit will give you words to speak in that moment? Is it when you read that if you are faithful and pure before the Lord, that you will not feel unfulfilled in life? No, my Lord, do not lie to your servant. I don't think you really mean what you say. And yet Elisha calls the woman to have hope, just as the Spirit calls you to have hope, because God is a generous God. When the Israelites were entering the promised land for the first time, the people of God needed that reminder. And so Joshua said to them in Joshua 23, not one single word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. What God promises, He will do. What God offers, He will give. Let your hope rest on that. So we see that God is generous. But the story is just beginning. And as it continues, we learn that God is also in control. And because of that, we have hope. And that is all the more important because as we sang earlier, God gives, but God also takes away. And in those moments, we need to understand that He is still in control. The story goes on. The woman has a son just as Elisha promised. The child grows up. One day, he's out in the fields with the workers and his father, father and he passes out. So they rush him home. And in verse 20, the child sat on his mother's lap until noon. He died not the way anyone expected that story to go. God, who had miraculously given this woman a child, then looks on as the child dies. As we'll learn later, not even Elisha knew this was coming. Even Elisha didn't expect that to happen. And it seems from a human perspective that things are not happening according to the good and perfect plan of God. Because how could God allow this to happen? Not that any of us would ever ask that question, right? Not that any of us would ever wonder when faced with hardship or pain or loss, how could a good and loving God let something like this happen? But notice the woman's response. Verse 21, she 
went up, laid the boy on the bed of the man of God. She, she took the boy to Elisha's room and shut the door behind him and went out. She hides her dead son's body in Elisha's room and then doesn't even tell her husband what happened. As far as the husband knows, the boy just got thirsty or hungry or tired or heat stroke and he just passed out and needed to go lie down for a little bit. So then she says, I'm going to go find Elisha. I'm going to go see Elisha right now. And her husband, who is almost comically clueless throughout this story, in verse 23 says, why would you go to him today? It's not even the new moon or a Sabbath. It's not Sunday. Why are you going to church? And she says, all is well. Her response in the original language in Hebrew is shalom, which means peace. It's a, it's a, general, it's a very general word. It's an evasive word when used in that context. It's like saying, everything's fine. It's all fine. Nothing to worry about. Don't worry about it. Chill out. It's the same answer she gives in verse 26. Elisha tells his servant Gehazi, run at once to meet the woman that's running to meet us and, and, and say to her, shalom with you? Shalom with your husband? Shalom with your child? Is everything okay with everyone? And she answered, shalom. All is well. Is she in denial? I don't think so. I think she's expressing her faith that despite the circumstances, God is in control and all must be well. The reason I see and am convinced she's not in denial is because when she gets to Elisha, we see the depths of her grief that she is wrestling with what's happened. In verse 27 and 28, she came to the mountain of the man of God. She catches hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away because she is disgracing herself. She's, she's making a fool of herself. And the man of God says, leave her alone for she is in bitter distress and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. I don't even know what's happening here, Gehazi. And then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? I knew this was going to happen. Why did you let me get my heart so built up Yet in her grief, she has hope. The fact that she is there demonstrates that she has the hope of Abraham, who was also gifted a miraculous son late in life. And when he was later called to sacrifice that son to God, in his confusion, he still had hope. Hebrews 11 says that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, he actually offered up Isaac considering that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive his son back from the dead. See, Abraham was fully ready to sacrifice his son because he figured if God miraculously gave this child life, can he not also raise him from the dead? The same is true of Martha. And I see in this woman, this Shunammite woman, I see the hope of Martha at the grave of her brother Lazarus in John 11. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. In other words, how could you have let me get my hopes up and then not come through for me? But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. So this woman comes to the prophet, doesn't even ask for anything. Just as she never asked for a son to begin with, she doesn't ask for her son to be raised. All she does is she brings her grief and pours out her grief and her despair and her out-of-control life to the one who has the power to intervene. That, Christian, is how 
hope expresses itself. Hope says, no matter what is happening in the world, no matter what is happening in my life, I know that God is in control and I can bring it to Him. As we often sing, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, shalom, it is well with my soul. Any, any Trekkies out there? Any Star Trek fans? I was thinking about this the other day. The, uh, the old Star Trek series, Star Trek The Next Generation. There's a, a recurring character named Q. Q is kind of a curious being, you would call him. He, he's able to control and alter reality. He, he seems to know all things. He seems omniscient, seems practically omnipotent. He has the power to intervene and save and do whatever he wants. He occasionally pops up and dabbles in, in the affairs of the crew of the Starship Enterprise. And yet when he does, we see that although he can control reality and has the power to save, Q is portrayed as uh, capricious. He's unreliable. He's selfish. He's, he's whimsical. He's not someone you can trust. What good is all this power to control and save if it's connected to someone with such a character? It's no good. That's the encouraging thing about your hope. The power of God to control your circumstances is connected to the generous love of God for you. This woman trusted the heart of God. The God who gave her a son she was afraid to ask for. The God who knew her heart's song. There is comfort in that for you. There is hope in that for you. That whatever your circumstances, God is in control. But not only that, the God who has revealed His loving kindness to you is in control. And now I ask you, is there any election? Is there any court ruling? Is there any national crisis? Is there any insult? Is there any unkind action? Is there any loss? Is there any setback that can overcome the loving control of God which is for you? What then has the power to shake you, to unsettle you, to harm you? As Paul writes in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No! In all these things, we are more than confident. More than conquerors because we are strong and brave, right? No. More than conquerors because we, we know and we understand what's really happening and why things happen the way they do, right? Is that what your Bible says? More than conquerors through our insight, through our skill, through our theological knowledge, through our luck. How is it that we rise above our crisis, our fears, our threats? Is it through teamwork? Through grit? Through perseverance? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. God is in control and God loves you. If that does not give you hope, I don't know what will. And yet, and yet there is still a boy dead in a room. There is still a mother grieving with a sliver of hope. And the Lord in His kindness gives us a picture, a preview of where His loving control ultimately will lead us. 
We've seen that He is generous. We've seen He is in control. Finally, we see that He is victorious. As a pastor, I hear it almost every week. I hear from someone who's struggling with the reality of pain and loss and suffering and death. Confused as to how these things can still be happening if God is in control. And it's true. Death is the last and great enemy of God, the life giver. And I think again of the story of Lazarus, who the Gospel tells us was a friend of Jesus, someone Jesus cared about and even loved. Listen to how Jesus reacts when He hears of Lazarus's sickness in John 11. The sisters, Mary and Martha, sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, He whom You love is ill. And when Jesus heard it, he, he turns to His disciples and He says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And make no mistake, Jesus was not ignorant. Before He even left on the two-day journey to go see Lazarus, He told His disciples, Lazarus is already dead, guys. Lazarus is dead. But He had just said that this sickness would not lead to death. By which He meant, it doesn't end there. Death is not the end of the journey. Lazarus' sickness would pass through death, but it would not end in death. And in case you don't know the rest of the story, Jesus would get there, and like He did at every funeral He attended, Jesus broke up the funeral by raising the dead man. A miracle which, like the one we see Elisha doing here, a miracle which shows the victory of God over even death. But the story doesn't proceed directly to that. At first, Elisha sends Gehazi, his servant, to rush ahead and get there first, and he gives Gehazi his staff with which he accompanied him and performed God's miracles on his behalf. Gehazi, we see, went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound, and there was no sign of life because it wasn't some sort of magical staff. It wasn't some magic spell that would restore life to the boy. Instead, as Elisha shows us in verse 32, when he came to the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. And so Elisha went in, shut the door behind the two of them, and prayed to the Lord. It was God who first gave the boy life. It was God who controlled the end of the boy's life. It was God and God alone who would restore his life. And so Elisha prays to the Lord. And after a short process, the boy rises up, restored again, to life. He's returned to his mother, the woman whose hope is now secure. What Elisha knew in part, we now know in glorious fullness. Elisha knew that the Lord was sovereign and mighty even over death. But in his day, lives were only snatched from death like prisoners of war being rescued secretly and stealthily one at a time. And those who were rescued even in that day would still someday die. This boy that was raised to life, we don't know how much longer he lived, but one day he again was taken by death. Death was not yet defeated. I was thinking about this and I was reminded of the, uh, the wonderful, one of my favorite movies, Hook. You ever seen Hook? It's the story of, of Peter Pan as if he had left Neverland and grown up and forgotten he was ever Peter Pan played perfectly by Robin Williams as a, a pudgy, middle-aged, 
uh, uh, success and career-driven man, separated from his family and his kids uh, because he's forgotten who he was. But Captain Hook has not forgotten all that Peter Pan did. And he, he leaves Neverland and he kidnaps Peter Pan's children and, and takes them away to Neverland. So that Peter Banting needs to be taken to Neverland, reminded of who he is, and needs to learn again how to fight. And he does. And he goes in. And he rescues his children. But as they're leaving, Dustin Hoffman's Captain Hook says, you've not heard the last of Hook. This is not the end. I will come after your children again and again and again and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren and you will never be free of me. At which point Peter Pan realizes that as long as Hook is alive, they will never be safe. A greater victory is needed. We've rescued them for a day, but they are still not safe. That's what needs to happen in Jesus Christ. Not just that we would one, one day for a day or a season rise from the dead, but death itself must be defeated or else it comes back again and again, knocking at the door. And so the 17th century poet, John Donne, if I may modernize his language a bit, writes, Death, be not proud. For those whom you think you overthrow, die not, poor death nor yet can you kill me. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, you shall die. What if instead of rescuing prisoners one by one from the enemy's camp, what if the enemy himself was conquered and defeated? What if death dies? That, my friends, is the victory of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus did not just die so that we could be forgiven. He did. He did die so that we could be forgiven. Amen? We are forgiven. Hallelujah. Jesus died. He took your place on the cross. Amen? But we don't just preach a Christ on the cross. We preach an empty tomb and Christ on the throne where He is now. We don't just preach the death of Christ in our place. We preach the resurrection of Christ for our victory. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle writes, Then comes the end when He, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all of His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Resurrection from death in the Bible, it happens. But those resurrections are few and far between. We could probably list on, on one or two hands the number of times someone in the Bible is raised from the dead. But when it does happen, it's a sign. It points to something. Resurrections show us that God will someday be victorious over every power, even the greatest and final enemy, death. We sometimes sing the hymn, O quickly come, bread judge of all, which has these words, death is mighty all around. On every home its shadow falls. On every heart, its mark is found. But death, we are reminded, is a defeated enemy. And so, child of God, have hope. Have hope, not just because we've read a story where one woman receives her son back from the dead. Have hope because of what that story points to. 
this story points to another son that was promised in Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. This child shall be the Mighty God. He shall be the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of his shalom there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Not only did God promise this son, but he in fact gave this son in John 3, 16. God so loved the world. He gave his only son. that Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So find hope in the generosity of God that he gives us this son. And though that son also, like the one in this story, that son died a terrible and untimely death on a cross. Even that death was not outside of the control of God. Jesus even said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Even at his death, Jesus is in control. So find hope and take comfort in the control of God. And like the son in this story today, that greater son did not remain dead, but instead rose again. And just as he promised Martha at the grave of Lazarus in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Because this one, this son, is victorious over death. And so we find hope also in the victory of God. My friends, if you ground your hope in these things, that God is a generous God, that He is in control of all things, and that He has guaranteed already won the victory. You ground your hope in these things, you will not be shaken. You will not be overwhelmed. You will not despair, but you will be strong. Not because your faith is strong. Not because... You believe the right things, not because everything works out the way you want it to. You will be strong because of Christ in you. The Christ who is generous, who is in control, and who has won the victory, is in you. Therein lies your hope. Therein is your sure foundation. Let us rejoice in that as we pray together today. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for what you have given you do not promise what you do not intend to give, and you do not give what is not good. We rejoice in that. Though you give and at times take away, we have no doubt that you are in control. Teach our hearts to rest in these things. That there is nothing that any person, every, any government, any society, there is nothing anyone can do to us beyond your great and mighty control, which is guided by your love. We are assured that you have won the victory over sin, over death, over hell itself. And because of Christ in us, we are included in that victory. It is in his name we pray with great hope. Amen. Amen.